Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Adarsh Thacker, your co-host for Innovation and Duodenoscope Design. Over the next five episodes, Dr. Uzma Siddiqui and I will speak with leading experts on duodenoscope-related infections and explore how technological innovation is helping us to overcome this issue. In today's episode, I'll be sitting down with Drs. Gregory Cote and Dr. Andy Ross. Dr. Gregory Cote is Professor of Medicine and Division Head for the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Oregon Health and Science University with expertise in treating patients with pancreatic or biliary disorders. He's a clinician scientist whose research program focuses on clinical trials and outcomes research pertaining to pancreatic or biliary diseases, and he's principal investigator for two NIH-funded studies on these topics. Dr. Andrew Ross is the Executive Medical Director for the Center of Digestive Health at Virginia Mason Franciscan Health in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Ross has been in practice over 15 years and is focused on treating patients with pancreatic or biliary disease, esophageal disorders, early gastric malignancies, and other advanced endoscopic procedures. He's the author of multiple peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters in the field of gastroenterology and is well known for his uh, recent work on infection controls issues in ERCP. So thank you to both of you for being here, Dr. Cote, Dr. Ross, and I look forward to talking about the topic today, which is really exploring the pros and cons of disposable or single-use duodenoscopes, which are being promoted and are widely popular now available from two different manufacturers at the time of recording this podcast. But before we jump into our conversation discussing that, I'll, I'll first start with Dr. Cote. Just tell us a little about your work and what your experience has been in this issue of infection control and trying to solve it at your institutions. Well, yeah, and thanks for having me. I have to say that it's been an amazing journey over the last five years since these first more recent outbreaks were reported. This is something that really honestly wasn't on my radar in my training program. We didn't talk about scope processing. We didn't talk about these issues. We focused on the adverse events that we actually observe on a more frequent basis in ERCP, like technical failure, pancreatitis, et cetera. So I think this raised awareness that scope reprocessing, infection control in general is important. And it even extends beyond the scope to other behaviors like wearing a mask, which obviously has become second nature for us uh, since COVID. Gloves were never an issue, but a lot of the other sort of personal protective equipment, people were very inconsistent in my experience during my training program and what was worn during endoscopic procedures. So it's brought a lot of sort of these things to light. I have to say that I think that the scope of the problem, no pun intended, has been vastly overstated. We're talking about case series outbreaks at individual centers that seems to be leading to a massive pendulum swing to where I'm hearing from my colleagues that we should expect to be converting to a fully disposable portfolio of all endoscopes over the next decade, which concerns me, to be completely honest with you. Because if you look at the history of surgery, where in the old days, surgeons would walk in off the street, no gloves, run water maybe on an instrument and do operations. And there was a measurable risk of infection after those types of procedures, which obviously led to a variety of iterations to where now in the operating room, 
nearly everything has become fully disposable. But they've realized there are a few decades ahead of us that the medical waste that has resulted from that extreme conversion to a fully disposable operating room has probably overstated the benefits of infection prevention in the operating room. Now we're seeing the same thing in endoscopy. So, you know, this is a very challenging science. A lot of this is patient perception, which also concerns me because I hear things like, well, if the patient requests the use of a certain scope, we need to obligate, we need to oblige them because of this risk. But really, it comes down to maybe more proper education on what the scope of the problem is and take advantage of it and innovate where appropriate, but also keep it and calibrate it to this to the actual original sort of issues that originated from this, which was, frankly, you know, inappropriate scope maintenance and cleaning led to, again, isolated outbreaks of a highly virulent bacteria. We need to make sure that our, our modifications to our practice are calibrated to the to again to that issue and not overstated. Dr. Ross, what are your thoughts on this from your perspective and uh, particularly in light of the kind of experience you went through? Sure. So I, I I would agree on many fronts with what Dr. Cote just said, which is if you would have told me 10 years ago or 15 years ago when I got into being a therapeutic endoscopist that I would in some way, shape, or form have interest in infection control processes in GI endoscopy as something that I did or it was a, that it was a, a special interest of mine, I would have probably laughed at you at the time. And that's because, as Dr. Cote points out, this was not really our zone. I always like to tell the story of when I first went into my GI fellowship, they introduced us to Hattie. And Hattie was the lead go-to tech in the scope processing room. And we met with Hattie and Hattie taught us how to clean a scope. And within like 30 seconds, your eyes would kind of glaze over because there was too many steps and cables and cords and everything to connect stuff to. And Hattie knew that if we came in in the middle of the night and we reprocess a scope as the fellow, she would redo it and she would put it through its proper paces mainly because it's a repetitive behavior that is a large number of steps and needs to be done right all the time. Having gone through a very big outbreak in our own institution, that's what kind of got me interested in this space. And I I, I think the scope of the problem is relatively unknown. And here's why. The bacteria that we've been able to identify and in our center, in our particular case, we didn't even know we had this issue. So we were sending off samples to a state reference lab that was interested in the emergence of these highly you know, virulent bacteria. And we, we were sending it off because for years we had cultured the bile in people who had PSC. We had a microbiologist who happened to be interested in this space. And we were just sending it off because the, our state was looking for the prevalence of these bacteria within the entire state. And we got a call from the state lab that said, you don't have what we're looking for, but you do have 32 patients with an ident genetically identical bacteria. So we didn't even know that we had it. And the point is, without these highly virulent organisms, if you pass a, if you have a scope that's contaminated and is passing a pan-sensitive E. coli that responds to Levaquin, 
You would never know it. It doesn't ring any bells. It doesn't put anything up the flagpole. And so this, you know, again, led to all of the, a lot of the additional work that has come out in this space. And so we can say that it's isolated case reports. However, these are just the ones that we know about. And I will also tell you that there is no joy in actually going through this and reporting it because it doesn't really matter what you do or what you did or how well you were doing things. The newspaper story is always the same. It's hospital X uses endoscopes that are dirty. And those things create all sorts of collateral damage. I think there's a bigger issue at play. And, and in my opinion, look, we've seen under best possible circumstances with the old fixed cap duodenoscopes that five, six percent of those come out of the washer with bacteria on them. And while I'm not here to say that we should move to a fully disposable fleet, and Dr. Cote is right in that regard, I agree with him, that I don't think that the answer is, oh, we have one problem, so let's just go the complete opposite way and create something that's totally disposable, and let's use that in every case. I do think from a public health standpoint, our patients are expecting the equipment that we use to be clear of bacteria and ready for use on them by the time it gets used. And we should actually expect that. And so the answer in this situation is we could just do the status quo and say, this is the best we can do and tell our patients, look, this is the scope. It's a really important piece of equipment and the cleaning protocols are the cleaning protocols. Or we can use this opportunity to innovate and try to get incremental gain and incremental benefit. And I think ultimately at the end of the day, I think that's where we'll land. I'm not sure that we'll end up with a fully disposable endoscopes wherever we're doing endoscopy uh, in the future. Dr. Ross, I'll continue with you with my first specific question. I've heard people say that really the only way to know that a scope is completely clean is if it's brand new out of the box, right? Like a like a single use scope would be. But are there other ways that someone, if a patient asked me, is your scope clean, that I could somewhat confident say, what are your thoughts on kind of the current standards we have to determine if a scope is clean? Sure. So one of the things that this entire story has done has forced us to go back and look at scope reprocessing. So there's no question. It's a complicated device. It's a complicated multi-step process. And the biggest issue with regard to the process itself is that the indicator for failure, when the process fails, we know about it because somebody gets sick. Sometimes we may know that the process fails because the AER doesn't work and maybe it rings an alarm. But when the process fails and the scope comes out and it has bacteria on it, we know that because a patient gets sick. And, if, and, and when you look at process design, that's really far down the line, right? And in fact, that's like building a car and every once in a while, you bring one to the dealership. They didn't check it when it went down the assembly line. And every once in a while, someone got in the car and it lit on fire or something bad happened, right? That's way too do far down the line. And so the biggest issue with the process and getting to that question is, we don't have a great way to know, is this scope clean and ready for use on the next patient? And so we can go down the pathway here. We can culture our scopes, right? And some of us have done that. And in fact, we've either done periodic surveillance or we've cultured the scopes ourselves. That is probably a brute force, very expensive method to understand whether or not the scope is clean. 
And there's always going to be the issue of, well, is it sampling error? Was there not enough bacterial burden? So we, we won't know for sure. So unfortunately, today, the only way to know for sure that the scope is clean enough and ready for use on the next patient, if you look at it just in a black and white sense of the word, is either the scope is brand new and out of the box, or it's a disposable scope. But again, I think that this is, in my opinion, very much an iterative process. We have learned. So, you know, some people are using ATP to try to test it. We've learned that that probably doesn't give us the answer 100% of the time. And so, again, it, it really gets back to the issue of how do we want to approach this as gastroenterologists and people working in this space, given the information that we have today? Dr. Cote, do you have kind of just feeding right off of the question Dr. Ross just asked? What do you think? Well, I'm hearing a lot of the sort of the arguments that I hear, frankly, much more out of industry than anywhere else, which is that you really don't know if the scope is clean. And I would give a couple of analogies to both of you as well as to patients. The odds of getting into a car accident on the way to your procedure or back is higher than that of having an obvious duodenoscope-associated infection. Yes, could we be transmitting some as of yet to be identified virus between patients and we're transmitting the next HIV across patients? Theoretically possible, highly unlikely. It comes down to, it's the same thing, right? So you're more likely to acquire a coronavirus from your endoscopist or your nurse that's in the room who's not wearing an N95 in a negative pressure room. So should we do these procedures in a negative pressure room? with that level of personal protection to prevent transmission of infections from one person to another? Should we be touching these perfectly clean, fully disposable duodenoscopes with a sterile glove in an operating theater that's been completely cleaned as you would between operating procedures? The answers to that thing, those things, I think most endoscopists would agree would be no, because if we have to start doing colonoscopies, colon cancer screening, in, in an operating theater, a sterile environment, we will again take a cancer screening test that's already become too expensive with the use of anesthesia for sedation and added another risk, added another cost to it. So there's no such thing as perfect zero in risk in medicine. And what we're talking about here from a cost perspective is way out of bounds from what the actual measurable risk is, which is why all of the discussion around this immediately deviates from duodenoscope-associated infections to likelihood of contamination of a scope. Having a contaminated scope does not mean that I'm giving you the organism that's on that scope. It just means that that scope isn't perfectly sterile at the time it's inserted into your mouth, which, by the way, is full of bacteria. So, I mean, I again, it's if, if this is a real risk, prove it by way of a comparative effectiveness study that shows that if you do procedures with fully disposable scopes, you will, after one to two years, demonstrate that you will not, I'll even accept colonization of a patient with an organism from one patient to another, as opposed to overt infection. So that's kind of where I stand on it. I mean, I think there's other advantages, and there's certainly appreciation of improvements in the, in the design of our scopes to make them easier to use less costly, safer for patients. But this issue of doing it for safety to prevent 
passage of infection from one person to another, to me, you will not be able to show it. I'd be happy to be proven wrong, but you can't with what the risk that we have now. So if I'm hearing you, you, the way that you kind of reconcile, you know, this potentially measurable risk of some persistent contamination versus the goal of getting to zero is still that it's still a rare outcome. It's the same thing as having a doctor who's colonized with MRSA, many of who we are, right? Positive. And me giving MRSA to that patient and them being colonized from it because I touched them. If cost or reimbursement for these kind of innovative devices were not a factor or less of a factor or potentially became equal to the cost of leasing devices, maintaining them, et cetera, I'll let Dr. Ross kind of chime in too, but would that change your thinking? In regards to a fully disposable duodenoscope is what I'm assuming you're referring to, correct? Yeah. And Dr. Ross, maybe you can chat a little bit about kind of the, when you compare kind of the cost of these devices, considerable for still what's what we believe is relatively uncommon outcome. How do you reconcile that? And do you think that that would, is that the game changer that needs to happen? I think you got to be really careful anytime you start talking about cost and reimbursement. And so to tell me that there's no added cost to the system because the device gets reimbursed actually belittles the question, in my opinion. Anytime you add cost, you are adding cost, even regardless of whether or not it's getting reimbursed, you're still adding cost to the, the global healthcare system as a whole. And so I do think that does need to be taken into consideration. I do want to clarify, right? I'm not sitting here on today saying that every single procedure should be done with a disposable scope, and nor do I believe that. I think that what we've seen as a result of this problem is actually exactly what we would have hoped for, which is innovation in device design. And so we're not just talking about disposables and, and you know there are other innovations that have occurred that I think, frankly speaking, have gotten to what the FDA has said is, look, you can't go out anymore and say, well, the problem is user error. The problem is user error. The problem is user error. User error is part of device design is what they've said. And so we've seen this, right? We've seen innovation in this space. In my opinion, disposable scopes are one solution, but we've seen other innovations. So we have scopes that are now easier to clean. You'll have a separate podcast on this, but the data are pretty good around those scopes and demonstrating that, yes, those scopes are more cleanable. I agree, even if cleanable is even a word. And I just want to get back to one of the, the point that Dr. Cote made, which is it's really hard to do a study where you show intervention X and now you reduced post-ERCP cholangitis. I think that's really, really, really hard to do. And I don't think you'll get there, as you point out, with anything. But I do think really what we're hoping for is just some iterative innovation. And you've seen it. You've seen it in the device design. You're now seeing it with disposables per se. But I do think that we have to, I think we have to consider cost. I think we absolutely cannot discount environmental impact, though I think in that conversation, we do need to have a similar conversation around, okay, when you have all sorts of glutaraldehyde and other chemicals that are going through our automated endoscope processors, et cetera, and some of the waste that we see just in reprocessing, we've got to consider the entire picture. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know, when I think about cost too, I, I think about 
not necessarily adding cost to the whole system. I completely agree with you on that on the healthcare system, but could there be things that are eliminated? So for example, we have a new unit opening up where we might maybe do a dozen ERCPs in a year because it's one of the community sites. So where we don't have to invest in some kind of enhanced reprocessing for elevator scopes. We don't have to train someone to do uh, reprocessing. So could there be places where we could find savings? I think that again, like we mentioned, is going to be a whole different discussion as well. So I totally completely agree with you that the reimbursement and the cost are almost separate issues. Something that that you had mentioned, and Dr. Cote, I'd love to have you chime in first on this, but because you both alluded to it, are there other areas where you think it could make sense to, there may be some role? Now, certainly, I think there's a consensus amongst this group that this is not something that we're going to go to 100%. But could there be a place for something like a specific type of design or a different type of single-use scope? Well, I think you just gave a great example of a situation where I can actually see rationale for using a fully disposable duodenoscope, which is in a unit that does very little ERCP. Now, we should have a separate podcast about whether or not we should offer ERCP in facilities that do it less than once a week. But in the U.S. healthcare system, most facilities that do ERCP do it that infrequently. That's a bigger problem to the public health than what we're talking about today. But it does make sense. If we're going to continue as we are with our current reimbursement model, it absolutely makes sense. These are unfamiliar. They're more complex duodenoscopes that are going to be sitting on your shelf for a week or more at a time between procedures. So yeah, it makes more sense to just go to a completely disposable fleet in that situation. And I'm glad you you used the term elevator scopes because we're not talking about linear echoendoscopes, right? So that also means, and why aren't we talking about the risk that we're incurring on patients when we do endoscopic ultrasound with fine needle aspiration? In principle, and what we know is is that the contamination rate of those scopes is very similar to the fixed end cap duodenoscopes. So this isn't a duodenoscope discussion, it's an endoscope discussion, which is why the momentum has gone in such a direction that I think actually Andy's wrong. I think that the trend will continue until cost reimbursement changes. And we appreciate the scarcity of resources and we have to do more for less. We're going to keep this, we will continue to see a push to a fully disposable endoscope fleet. So I think that's a great example of where um, using a fully disposable duodenoscope makes sense is in a unit that does very little of it. I just want to make sure that we don't edit out the part that I don't think that those units should be doing ERCP at all, but uh, I'll leave it at that. The Other examples, though, that I'm hearing from experts on this are you should consider using a fully disposable duodenoscope in the patients who are high risk or who couldn't handle a duodenoscope-associated infection. For example, your cancer patient or your transplant patient or your patient with very large burden stone disease and infection. None of those are evidence-based. All of that is nonsense. And if we're going to start using a less familiar scope only in the more complex cases, that makes no sense to me. So back to Andy's point about how it's very hard slash impossible to design a study that compares the two interventions and shows a benefit, it's impossible because the outcome of interest is exceedingly rare. So if that group that I just alluded to, the cancer patients, the transplant patients, are at such an extreme risk then design a study that shows that by using fully disposable scopes, you reduce the risk of, again, colonizing that patient or infecting that patient. I still don't think you'll be able to do it because the risk is so exceedingly small. 
An another area where you can, where I think actually there's a good case for utilization is in surgical ERCP. So in our experience, we have found it to be a really nice device to just bring to the OR. The OR is a different place, right? The endoscopy unit is not the operating room. And Greg, I don't know about you, but anytime I go in the OR, the OR staff gets freaked out because our contaminated endoscopy staff is there and maybe we don't know how to behave and what to touch and what we can't touch. And to be able to open up a completely sterile instrument as opposed to one that has undergone high level disinfection, I think provides some degree of reassurance for the OR staff and uh, we can open it up directly onto the table. I always like to share this anecdote. We've done a lot of surgical ERCP here for patients with altered anatomy and rewide gastric bypass. And I can remember we used to send the scopes out to get gas sterilized with ethylene oxide. And we had to send it out off campus. And one time the scope came back and we looked at it. We said, this thing looks like it's been in someone's Weber barbecue. What happened? And they sent it out for gas sterilization. The place where they sent it, put it through the autoclave. Again, that's a, you know, we laugh about it, but Greg, you run a, a GI division now. You know what capital budgets are like. You know what it's like looking at capital budgets. And that's a $28,000, $30,000 error that, you know, we've got to be able to, for which we've got to be able to account. And so I think in that case, and I don't know what your practice is in, in, in OHSU, we use the disposable device in the OR, and it just has, I think, brought everyone's pulse down about 20 points. The other example is the weekend, right? After hours type situation, we don't have to worry about the scope. I mean, these, again, these are, these are valid points. So I think that these are situations in which you could make a valid argument to just throw it away. But back to your issues of cost, it has to be cost neutral to the healthcare system for us to consider this. And considering that cost is not just dollars, having a reimbursement code is adding to our deficits in this country it is not should not give us any sort of comfort that we're doing better for our patients or that we're generating more revenue. But that is very myopic in, in your thinking. And the environmental piece is, and I hope that this will drive more research on the amount of waste that we generate in endoscopy, like we're learning in the surgical world. And Andy's got a great point. The water use and the chemical use and so on, that has to be considered too on the duodenoscope side. But we have to be honest with ourselves in terms of the manufacturing materials cost. And then we know that most of these things are not being recycled. And I just don't see the rest of the world adopting the luxuries that we have become accustomed to in the United States, where they're still using reusable guide wires and sphincteratomes, which is how we started in this country. And we've gotten away from that. This is the next iteration. So History repeats itself, and that's what's happening right now. And it's, I think, again, I think it's a bit misguided in a lot of ways. We have to keep our, our eyes on, on exactly the issues and do best for our patients without undue cost. I think this is, has allowed us to take a broader look at endoscopy per se. In other words, everybody can remember back to the day where people said, oh, you know, you're using a long wire system. The wires hit the floor right? And people would say, yeah, but it's endoscopy. We're doing endoscopy. And like, everyone can remember back to the day where people weren't wearing masks, as Greg, you just pointed out. This has 
cause at least in my institution us to take a broader look at endoscopy. I'm not, and I'm not here to say that we should be like the operating room, but there are certain things that we have done differently. And I don't know whether or not they ultimately have an impact, but they feel like the right thing to do. So having a clean and dirty side and not touching the clean side of the endoscopy lab with, you know, soiled, soiled gloves, having cabinets that have fronts on them so that all of the equipment is not you know, always opened up and exposed. I mean, there, there are just, you know, a few things that I think, just like the story and discussion on PPE, et cetera, that this whole story has just, again, made us take another look. And I will also, I think to do better, right, is always difficult. It's expensive to innovate. It's hard to prove. We can't be as scientific as we want to be. But I think if you take on FOSS, the issue here that we have, devices that can come out of the washer with bacteria, and that in turn translates itself into some, some, and I, I can't quantify the risk, some risk, you know, to patients. And I can't tell you if it's super high. I don't think so. It's probably on the low side. It should push us just to stop, pause, and say, okay, here's where we are. And can we improve the process in any way? Because otherwise, as I said at the beginning, we should stop and we should just we should have the conversation with each other and to our patients and say, okay, the old scopes, the old models, that's the best we can do and have that discussion with patients. But my point here is that someone said we should never let a good crisis go to waste. And Greg, I agree with you. We should never take a crisis and blow it up and, and change everything by 180 degrees, but at least use it as an opportunity to make some iterative improvements so that you know, we can do better tomorrow than we're doing today. But the problem, Andy, is just like, again, you just, the risk is probably low. The risk- I don't know what the low. risk is. I, I don't it's know. It's low. I know that it's low. I don't see patients coming back into my hospital within 90 days of an ERCP with an infection. So we know that the risk of a duodenoscope associated infection is low. Maybe the colonization rate's a little bit higher than that, but we know that we have not been inducing a pandemic for the last 45 years. We know this. So. That's number one. I mean, we just have to be clear on that. The problem is, is as we use that kind of terminology that we really don't know, we think it's low, but we're not sure, this is turned into a market opportunity. That's why we're having this podcast. That's why there's been such a drive over the last five years, right? This is a new market for the medical device industry, period. We have failure rates for ERCP in this country that are 10%. If you have an ERCP, 10% of in this country, 10% of them are having another one within seven days of it because it's a hard procedure. And because a lot of people that do it don't do it very often. We've done nothing to address that issue. We've done very little to address the issue of post-procedural pancreatitis. We still do ERCP for indications that are unclear or unproven. These are much bigger issues that we have not tried to tackle. This is an issue that can be addressed in principle by going to a fully disposable fleet, new market, and so there's this been massive momentum drive. And so we have to be honest with ourselves on what this is. That's what it is. This is a new market that is being developed. And I fault industry in no ways because they're taking it. This is, this is what they do. And they're trying to innovate. Our job is to make sure that that innovation is leveraged appropriately, period. 
I loved what uh, what Dr. Ross said as we'll close here, because uh, you talked about how we need to have the conversation with each other and with our patients. And I think that uh, both of you made some great points, and that's exactly what I wanted to get out of this podcast. This is exactly the type of conversation I think will continue to be had as hopefully many people watch this and kind of reflect on the things that you brought up. Unless any other closing thoughts, I just want to thank both of you uh, for participating. Some, uh, as I mentioned, some great discussion points. So thanks to today's guests, Dr. Cote, Dr. Ross, and to all of you for tuning in. This is episode two out of six in our series on innovations in duodenoscope design. The program was developed by the AGA Center for GI Innovation and Technology and made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Boston Scientific. For additional resources on this topic, please visit us at scopeinnovation.gastro.org. Thank you very much again. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.